Good morning. Great to see you all. Thank you for uh, coming to church and joining with us as family today as we meet together to worship, to learn, and to meet with God. I want to read today. We're in a series called Resilience, and just recognizing that the past 21 months have been hard, haven't they? Let's be honest. And asking the question, what it looks like to be a resilient follower of Jesus, to have a faith that is, is deeper and stronger and more consistent than the, the changing nature of the world in which we live. So this morning, I want to read our Bible passage. It's simply one verse. Gary read the same passage last week, and I promise you it's not because he did a bad job with it. I just want to deep dive on one verse um, because I think there's something really interesting and really specific in this one verse for us as a congregation at this moment in our, our journey and in our story. So it's from John chapter 15. It is part of that famous passage where Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. And if you've been around church a little bit, you'll know and be familiar with that passage. If not, I encourage you to read it later on. But I want to read verse 9. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain or abide in my love. Let's read it again. It's only one verse. Let's read it again. We've got time. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. Let's take a minute to pray, and then we're going to think about this. This morning, uh, one of our elders was in their 24, or one of the 24-7 prayer space, and coming out of it, they sent me this prayer from Fanta Clark. And we use it now as we come to the scriptures. Let's pray. Today, Lord, may dreams be birthed in hearts. May light dawn on people as they listen. May lives be turned upside down. May our city be shaken such that we will never be the same again. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to our minds and speak to our hearts and form us into the beautiful image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'll put this this over here. Let me put this somewhere that is going to not annoy me, because at the minute it's annoying me. There we go. That's better. Have any of you been to the cinema yet to see the movie Belfast? Give us a hat wave. All you culture vultures out there, well done. That's great. Uh, If you haven't been, can I encourage you to go see it for, for a couple of reasons? One reason, it's a really good movie. Um, Second reason is it's shot right here. Well, like Ronsey, that does what it says on the tin. Shot in Belfast, about Belfast, filmed during the Troubles. Um, And and the third reason you should go see it is because one of our own members, young man, Lewis McCaskey, who's part of our Boys Brigade, part of our Youth Fellowship, part of our church family, is one of the actors in it and knocks it out of the park, and we're, we're so proud of him. 
um, for what he does and what he carries as a Christian in the film industry, in the film world. It's amazing. Um, but it's, it's a story about a family growing up in working class Belfast whose whole life revolves around a couple of streets um, that are predominantly Protestant with a few Roman Catholic families. The troubles are kicking off and the film starts with a riot uh, and this collective voice coming from certain elements in our city that there should be no Roman Catholics living on these streets. And I'm not going to tell you any more about the film, but I'm going to encourage you to go and watch it. I promise you, you will enjoy it. But I came out of the movie just being reminded of how much we have been formed by our, our childhood and our childhood experiences and the city in which we grew up in. And if we grew up in a Protestant area or a Catholic area or a middle class area, how significant that was in creating us into the people that we are today. We have been formed by our environments. If you had a dad who was an absent workaholic, then potentially you are someone who um, just feels more insecure and is desperate for approval from other people because you never got that from your dad. If you're someone who grew up with a, a mom who was very overbearing and maybe even competitive at times, perhaps you are now a person who has to wrestle with a very controlling nature and everything has to be just a certain way. You can't relax or, or move away from that. Maybe you grew up and you had an experience in school with a teacher who was very dismissive of you and said things like, you'll never amount to anything. And now as an adult, those words haunt you and linger over everything you try to do. You lack self-belief. You can't believe that people would love you, need you, or value you because of those words. Maybe you were bullied as a kid. Maybe there were things going on and, and, and there was abuse. All of these things form us into the people that we are today. I was talking to somebody about uh, Dairy Girls the other day, and I don't know if you've seen it, I'm not necessarily recommending you watch it, but there is a scene in it where they're doing a cross-community piece, and they have a blackboard out, and they're saying, you know, what do you think of, you know, about Catholics, and what do you think about Protestants, and, and all these stereotypes come out. Maybe you are a product of growing up in an environment with stereotypes about people you don't know or didn't get to spend time with and realize their humanity as well. And, and then let's not forget the last 21 months of isolation and fear and anxiety and separation and division that has been fueled on the back of the global pandemic that we have lived and continue to live through. We are products of our environment. That's what psychology tells us. Um, the, the culture around us, the climate around us, the values of the people around us, the words that they speak, the behaviors they practice, they soak into us and they shape us and they form us at a subconscious level. We are products of our environment and, and the movie Belfast and for most of you as adults, the experience of being an adult is trying to sift through your childhood experience that was normative and think what is good and of the kingdom of God and valuable to bring forward and what actually is not helpful. And I need to name that and lay it down at the foot of the cross. We are formed by our environment. 
And in this series about resilience, we've been exploring the effect that the last 21 months have had on us as individuals and as a church family. And we've been talking a lot over the past few weeks about individual rhythms, prayer, fasting, 24-7 prayer, things like that there. But this morning, I want to talk about corporate rhythms. Because if we are products of our environment, then we are formed in community, not in isolation. And so I want to think about our corporate rhythms, our corporate practices, and through the lens of John chapter 15, verse 9. You see, the background for these words, Jesus has just broken bread and wine with his disciples in the upper room the night before the cross, and we're going to celebrate that communion meal in a few moments' time. He's washed the disciples' feet. He's been betrayed by Judas Iscariot, who has left to go and find the people that he's going to hand Jesus over to. In 24 hours, he's going to have died on a cross. And so much happens in the hours in between. But Jesus rises from the table. He says to the 11 friends, disciples that he has, it's now time to go. And they they leave the table and they're making their way out of Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley, past, we believe, the the gates of the temple of Jerusalem that are covered in the symbol of Israel, the vine etched into the doorway of the temple. And most commentators believe Jesus looks at it and he says, do you know what? Not the nation, but me. I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. And he starts to unpack this amazing passage of scripture. And in it, He says these words, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, as the Father has loved me. You see, this section of teaching famously known as Jesus' last sermon uh, that, that we have before he went to the cross He talks about a number of things. You read it in John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17. But he talks about a number of things in it. But one of the primary themes is the Trinity. This idea that God is is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. As you read through it, he he talks about the Father. He he talks about himself, and he talks about the Holy Spirit who is to come. Now, I don't know where you get your theology of the Trinity from, whether it's from St. Patrick in the 4th century with his famous shamrock, three parts but one leaf, three parts but one God, or, or whether you get it from the 325 AD Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before the ages, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. It goes on, and then it says, and we believe in one Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He precedes from the Father and the Son. There you go, it's clear, simple. And there's more, and there's more. Or whether you formulate your understanding of the Trinity from these words in John chapter 15, and John chapter 16, and John chapter 17, as Jesus prays to the Father and reveals more of his own identity to his disciples and talks about the promised Holy Spirit still to come. What he's trying to do and what the church fathers were trying to do and what 
St. Patrick was trying to do was to find words to capture for our finite minds to understand what an infinite God, this divine being who reveals himself to us as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit, three individual persons but one and the same God is like. And they're trying to do it in ways that we can comprehend and understand. And, and, and if you struggle to understand the Trinity, don't feel too bad. One famous theologian once said that, that he understood the Trinity until he tried to look at it. And then got more and more confused and he ended up accepting it by faith alone, the doctrine of the Trinity. And what I want us to do here in this verse is zoom in on one part, one relationship within the Trinity, the Father and the Son, because Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, as the Father has loved me. Now, we talk all the time in church about God loving us, don't we? And if you've been coming to Orangefield for two weeks or or 25 years, you'll have heard week on week on week that God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, and that's absolutely true. But do you ever stop and think about how God the Father feels about God the Son? I find myself lingering over this question in the prayer room this week, that the Father loves the Son, that God the Father loves God the Son. In fact, seven times in the New Testament, the heavens open and the voice of God is heard, and he speaks and he says audibly, this is my Son whom I love. I I love my Son. I love Jesus. And seven times to mirror it in the New Testament, we see the Son saying, I am loved by my Father. Seven being the number of perfection, that that God perfectly loves Jesus, and Jesus has a perfect experience and understanding of the Father's love for him. Fascinating. And I've been thinking about that. What does it mean, though, that the Father loves the Son? What does it mean to say that? Because... It'd be easy to say it's based on obedience, that that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus and Jesus obeyed him and he went. So so that was what love looks like. It was obedience to the Father. And that's why God loves him. That Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins and mine. Is is, is that why God loves the Son? Or is it achievement? Um, We're told that, that Jesus was... Um, active in, in the act of creation, that all of creation holds together and is created in and through and for Jesus. Colossians tells us that. So does the Father love the Son because of what he achieved? Or because of his obedience? Or because of how he made him feel? No, John 17 verse 24 tells us, Jesus says, Thou hast loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the cross, before the incarnation, before the creation, before anything that we know or understand, God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father loved the Son perfectly from before the foundation of the world. It is not a love bent out of achievement or personal fulfillment or obedience or anything else that we tend to measure love as. So what does it mean that the Father loves the Son? I remember as a kid uh, playing rugby in secondary school on a Saturday morning, the freezing rain, 
And I, I loved nothing more than when my dad would come to watch me play. My dad worked in a busy job. There was a lot of demands on his time. He was away a lot. Um, and when he was at home, he was the kind of guy that helped everybody out. Somebody phoned and said, could you give us a hand bringing in hay? Could you give us a hand fixing the gate? Could you give us a hand doing something around the church? And dad was like, yeah, of course I will. But when he showed up on a Saturday morning to stand in the rain to watch me play rugby, and I wasn't very good. I don't think I was great to watch. I'm sure it was an effort for him. But when in those moments, I felt like I had my dad's undivided attention. No phones back then, no distractions, no phone calls, not having to rush off to be somewhere else there, fully present, gazing at me, playing rugby. Those are the moments that I felt loved by my father. And when we think about how the father feels about the son, I want to suggest to you that the father is fully available to the son, fully present with the son, not distracted, not off doing other things, not needing him to perform a certain way to be worthy of it. God, who is love, is fully present to Jesus. Every time Jesus stops to pray, he finds the Father looking at him, smiling on him, lavishing him with love. And why am I unpacking that so much? Why am I suggesting to you that love is spelt T-I-M-E when it comes to God? Why am I suggesting that? Because look what the verse says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, allow the weight of that to sit on you for a second. Jesus says, in the same way, to the same extent, that God the Father has loved me, God the Son, who has been with him from before the foundation of the world, that's how I love you, Jesus says talking to his disciples, talking to you, talking to me. In your failure and your fatigue, in your pain and your prejudices that you carry, in your conspiracies and in your critique of others, in the scars that you carry from past wounds, in your present day sins, both acted and said and thought, none of that diminishes an ounce how much God loves you. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Isn't that incredible, the weight of that? Isn't that incredible? We often say that the, the picture of God's love for us is the cross, don't we? You've heard that before? The picture of God's love for us is the cross, but the purpose of God's love for us. Maybe you'll rush to think, well, it's the forgiveness of sin. Yeah, yeah it is, but, but that's what he does. It's not the purpose. It's eternal life. Yeah, that's what he does, but it's not the purpose. The picture of God's love for us is the cross, the purpose of God's love. Why does he give us forgiveness of sin? Why does he make us whole? Why does he give us eternal life? The purpose of God's love for us, worked out at the cross, revealed to you through Jesus Christ, 
is his presence. The picture of God's love is the cross. The purpose of God's love is his presence. Jesus has come to forgive your sin, to take that out of your life so there is nothing between you and the Father so that you are able to have the same relationship with God the Father as Jesus enjoys with him. You are able to experience the same love with God as Jesus enjoys with the Father. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's what eternal life's about, that we can be with God eternally, enjoying him eternally. That's what forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sin is not about your self-completion and self-fulfillment as a human being. That's a byproduct of it. Forgiveness of sin is, that, is to take sin out of your life so that you can enjoy a perfect relationship with God. God's love for you is perfect in exactly the same way as the Father's love for the Son is perfect. Point number three. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. One word, you. Who's Jesus speaking to in this verse? I told you the answer earlier. Go on, tell me. Pardon? The disciples. There you go. You get brownie points. You get, uh, yeah, an extra cup of coffee and arc this week. There you go. The disciples. He's left the table. He's standing, sort of moving down into the Kidron Valley. He stops. He, he talks to his 11 disciples at this point. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The you is plural. It's not, a, it's not singular, it's plural. You know, if you lived in the Midwest in America, you'd be, so the Father has loved you all. We don't get as good a word. We get usings. Jesus did it better with the Greek. You, plural. And I, I know that. My theological head knows that. And yet when I read this text, I read it through Western individualistic eyes. I think it's all about me. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you, Gareth. But in actual fact, what this text is saying is, as the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you, Orangefield. It's plural, it's collective, it's whole, it's not individualistic. It's us, not simply me. And as you, as you linger on that thought, I find myself wondering the question, Perhaps you only experience the fullness of God's presence. You only are able to come into full maturity as a Christian. You're only able to have the mind of Christ form within you. You're only able to uh, mature and put down deep roots and become resilient in your faith in community as part of a church family. Can you be a Christian and not come to church? Yeah, you can. But can you fully mature as a Christian and not be part of a community of faith? No, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. 
And so the final point I want to hear, Jesus says, now abide in my love. Now remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. See, we've been talking over the past number of weeks about individual spiritual practices, how to grow in your resilience, grow in your faith, have deep roots as a disciple that allow you to be strong and to wither whatever storm comes at you, should it be a global pandemic or, or a bereavement or a whatever, an illness or a whatever. We've been looking at individual practices and, and, and they're really, really important. They're really important. But perhaps, perhaps it's only in community only in church family that we are truly able to know what it is to fully abide in the love of God. Only truly able to mature in the love of God. Think about it. Think about all those famous passages and, and verses that you see in Scripture that we love to quote and we probably overquote, let's be honest. Where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I will be there. It's a picture of what? Community, family, church. Or where, where Jesus says, whenever you feed the hungry or whenever you visit the prisoner or whenever you give water to the thirsty or clothe the naked, it's as if you're doing it for me. It's a picture of one person serving and loving another. It's a picture of community, of the broken being cared for by, by those who have in that moment. And it's a picture of God's presence being more fully revealed to us in community. When Peter talks about you are spiritual stones being built together with Christ as the chief cornerstone into a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Yeah, of course our theology tells us that the Spirit dwells in each one of us as individuals when we become Christians, but there is something about us being together as family, as community, that allows the Spirit to indwell us as a people in a fuller way, in a richer way. Think about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, something else in self-control. I've forgotten one, but if I said them fast, you'll not realize that. Okay. Almost all of those fruit of the Holy Spirit are matured where? In community, you don't become more loving sitting at home by yourself. You become more loving when you're sitting with other people that you have to love. To make a choice to love, to make a choice to forgive, to make a choice to do life with. Peace isn't something you wrestle with when you live by yourself on your own. But when you come into a place where there's other people who think different things, then, then allowing peace to mature in your life as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It happens in community. The fruit of the Holy Spirit mature in community. The gifts of the Holy Spirit 
are often received and are always refined. Where? In community, with the exception of the gift of tongues, which is for the individual. Every other spiritual gift is refined and used in community. It's used for building the church. It's used for blessing and serving other people. And often those gifts are given through the laying on of hands and somebody praying for you, again, in community. In community, as church. The primary paradigm for our sanctification and for our maturity is community, is the church. Now, I I want to caveat that because I'm aware there are some folk at home today who, either because of health reasons, have not been able to come back to church yet because their immune systems are compromised. I understand that completely. There's elderly folk who are no longer able to come out amongst us. I understand that completely. But there are other ways to do community. It doesn't have to simply be turning up on a Sunday morning. We have Zoom house groups and other ways to connect in for friendship and fellowship and worship. And the fact that you're worshiping today with us online, the fact that you're picking up the DVD and watching it during the week just reflects that heart desire to worship and to be with God's people in community. You are still part of God's family. You're still part of the community of faith. And I'm speaking right down the camera to you. But if you are able to be in the building, if you are able to show up with people, and as the pandemic eases and we pray over the next months, we will see that happening and it becomes safer to gather again. I want to say very clearly, the primary paradigm for your growth and your maturity as Christians is in community, is as the church, in fellowship with other people who are different from you and think different things than you think, but unite around the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we are so individualized by our Western culture, and it's not a Christian thing, it's, it's a cultural thing. We are so individualized by our Western culture that we value individual spiritual rhythms over corporate spiritual rhythms. Have you noticed that? Let me ask you a question to highlight this. Don't put your hand, just answer in your own mind. It's not a name and shame thing. If you haven't done your quiet time, your personal devotion for five days in a row, do you feel a pang of guilt? If you've missed church or if you've missed the Wednesday night prayer meeting for five times in a row, do you experience the same guilt? It's interesting, isn't it? Western individualism has formed us to the point where we devalue corporate rhythms. And yet corporate rhythms, I believe, and fellowship together, I believe, and church together, I believe, is the primary place that we are formed into mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you know, we've even turned corporate worship into an individualized experience. I loved that today. I didn't like it. Why, why did I didn't like those songs. I didn't like his sermon. You ever do that? And that's okay. It's okay to critique. I have no problem with that. But let me share an experience that I've had. So I love worship. I'm not a good singer. I tell you that all the time. But I love worship. 
It's great when we sing because then you can't hear me sing. And then the louder we sing, the louder I can sing without feeling self-conscious. Do you know what I mean? Yeah? The, the, yeah, that's okay. I, I love worshiping. I love worshiping as part of this church family. And I, I, I get in, I have my arms in the air. I'm giving a style. I love it. I love it. I love it. But more recently, I used to sit over here in the middle. And then um, since we've come back after lockdown, and I sit with my family over here. Um, which, which is great, but it, it does something different because my son Archie, who is 11, um, enjoys being in church, but he's also, um, yeah, he's, he's needy, and, and I find I, I'm trying to worship, and he's pulling on my jeans, or he's tap, 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 trying to worship Jesus here, tap, 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 it's ruining my experience of worship. And then I felt this gentle rebuke from God saying, I'm trying to run the universe and you're looking my attention and I am delighted to give it to you. And maybe your role here in worship is not just to have an amazing individualized experience of worship, but, but corporately to help your son do it too. And so now the tap, tap, tap. It's getting better because it feels like it's in time with the drums. And the tug, tug, tug turns into holding my hand as I worship. And I'm learning something because us is more important than me. And the primary paradigm for our sanctification is in community, even with people who think differently than we think. I'm going to bring this into land now. We've had 21 months of pandemic. And some of you in the building, and some of you at home, and some of the people you love who have stopped turning up and showing up and checking in are struggling in their faith. Are struggling in their faith. And I want to suggest there's a direct correlation between not being able to gather and be together properly for the past 21 months and all of us in some way or another struggling in our faith. And I want to invite you. And I want to invite you to invite the parts of our family who are, are more scattered than others at the minute. I want to invite you back in to our corporate rhythms, to our gathered worship on a Sunday. I want to invite you back into home groups. I want to invite you back into our prayer meetings on a Wednesday. And it's not just to, it's not to fill the seats. It's because I'm convinced as your pastor, as your minister, that you need it. And I'm convinced as your minister and your pastor that we need it. We are not complete as a church when you are not here. We are not the full body of Christ when you check out. And so I finish with three questions. I could tell you what to do, but, but there's so much around this place, formally and informally, that allow us to do community together. I, I want to ask you three questions. The first one is a head question. Who are you learning with? It's not enough just to listen to the person at the front give a sermon, but who are you learning with? 
Maybe that's you go home and over lunch you talk about it and critique what's been said and allow it to be refined in your life. What did you agree with? What did you think I got wrong? Because that happens. But what does it mean for you? Maybe it's in a home group where you come together to, to go deeper into the sermon or to read a book together or study a Bible passage together. But learning, iron sharpening iron, who are you learning with? Maybe it's a CBE group. Maybe it's just a couple of friends informally getting together to read the Bible. You haven't got a name for it, it's just mates hanging out. Who are you learning with? And then secondly, a heart question. Who are you vulnerable before? Who has permission to draw alongside you and say, I think you're struggling at the minute. Can I ask you how your heart is? Can I ask you how you're doing? Or I haven't seen you at church for a while. Are you okay? Or for you to be able to say to them, can I ask you to pray for me? I'm just finding things really hard at the minute. Who are you vulnerable before? And then thirdly, with your hands, who are you serving? Christian faith is not an individual sprint to the finish line. It's an invitation to be part of a body. A family. And within it, we all have gifts. I have gifts that allow me to stand here and do this. Other people have gifts that allow them to do different things. All of them are other-focused. All of them are about helping other people to live and to love and to grow in their faith. Who are you serving with the gifts that you have been given? Maybe it means volunteering, but maybe it just means hanging out with somebody. There's a million different ways you can serve. Who are you learning with? Who are you being vulnerable before? And who are you serving? I think if we can learn to answer those three questions this year, we as a family will become better at abiding in the love of God. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, won't you come and just sift through the grain and the chaff that has landed in people's heads and hearts this morning. What is God saying to you? What is your takeaway? What's he asking you to lean into or to change or commit to? Is there somebody he's asking you to reach out to and contact? Or maybe he's simply saying to you, it's time to ask for help. Father, thank you 
that you invite us into this family, this expression of your church here in Orangefield. And we pray for every member, particularly the ones who cannot be here this morning in person. And we ask you, bless them, Lord. And we ask that you bind them to us and us to them in love and in the name of Jesus. Amen.